Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 99, Like Red Balloons, Only Different. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on December 20th, 2022, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Well, it's been a very busy couple of weeks, almost none of which has to do with this podcast, unfortunately. There's been lots of the struggle for the legal tender and attendant travel, plus a fairly hideous, although short-lived, bout of norovirus. I'll spare you the particulars, which you can easily look up on the CDC website. The result was an unplanned week off on the podcast. Fortunately, I have a nice run of time in the next few weeks and expect to keep the content flowing, including perhaps our first interview episode. I found a great guest, a fellow history podcaster, and I believe I've also figured out how to record two tracks at the same time. We shall see if our conversation's any good. It probably won't be because nothing's very good the first time one tries it, but everybody has to start somewhere. Of course, the next episode will also be episode 100, which presumably calls for some sort of celebration. Keep your expectations low, but it may be the first interview episode at least. This episode is about the trading between the Dutch of New Netherland, the English first of Plymouth and then of Massachusetts Bay Colony, and the Algonquin and Iroquoian tribes in the region during the 1620s and 1630s. These relationships were important, both to the profitability of settlement for the Dutch and the English, and because they so destabilized the balance of power among the tribes and the Europeans that they would eventually lead to the very ugly Pequot War of 1636 to 1638. We have a lot to cover before we get to the Pequot War, but since I found a great paper on this topic, and papers are easier to schlep around while I travel, this seemed like a good week to set the table. The Dutch side of the story is plagued by the same problem that makes New Netherlands studies so challenging in general, the destruction of the records of the Dutch West India Company in the early 19th century. Fortunately enough, it survived to stitch together the stories. The stage is the coast of southern New England, principally Connecticut and Rhode Island around Buzzards Bay, and also along the banks of the Connecticut River, which long-standing and attentive listeners know the Dutch called the Fresh River. The region was one of the most densely populated areas north of Mexico, not only before European contact, but into the early 17th century. Here's how Mark Moesey, apologies if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, of the University of Winnipeg described the peoples of the region in his 2011 paper, The Dutch Connection, New Netherland, the Pequots, and the Puritans in Southern New England, 1620 to 1638. Quote, The main indigenous polities of Southern New England were the Pogasets, Pequots, Mohegans, Neantics, Narragansetts, and Poconokes, they were linguistically and culturally closely affiliated with peoples on eastern Long Island, such as the Montauks, Shinnecocks, and Unquachogs. All of these polities spoke a variety of the eastern Algonquin language, were closely connected through kinship and intermarriage, and shared many similar cultural practices. 
The shared cultural identity of peoples in the region was expressed by the Narragansett term Ninimisinuik, which translates as common people. Back to me. The tribes of the Ninimisinuik, say that a few times fast, had hereditary rulers or chiefs, which most of you know were known in the region as sachems. Sachems were charged with managing territorial boundaries broadly defined, which included war, diplomacy, and trade, all of which would become more fraught with the arrival of Europeans in New England. The status and influence of the sachems of the Ninimisinuik were amplified by trade and wampum, often over long distances. Wampum were small beads made from white and purple seashells found on the beaches of Long Island, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. For those who want to know the actual animal, we go to the Wikipedia entry, quote, The term wampum is a shortening of wampum pig, which is derived from the Massachusetts or Narragansett word meaning white strings or shell beads. The term wampum, or wampum pig, initially referred only to the white beads which are made of the inner spiral or columella of the channeled whelk shell, Bizicatopus canaliticalis, I blew that totally, or Bizicatopus carica. Seawant or succahawk beads are the black or purple shell beads made from the quahog or pokahawk clamshell Mercenaria, mercenaria. Seawant or zevant is the term used for this currency by the New Netherland colonists. Common terms for the dark and white beads are wampy, white and yellowish, and saki, dark. The Lenyapi name for Long Island is Sewanaki, reflecting its connection to the dark wampum. I have to admit, if I were going to set up an underground cryptocurrency, Maybe that's redundant. I'd call it dark wampum. In fact, I'm a little surprised nobody has done that yet. If it happens, you heard it here first, folks. Anyway, Indians would string wampum for safekeeping, often into ornately patterned belts and bracelets and garments, which required that holes be carefully drilled through the shells. This was no easy feat without metal drills or awls, a subject to which we will return the Iroquoian tribes far inland from the coast used wampum in rituals to unite their league and were eager for it. The Nini Missinuic tribes were, would trade wampum to the Iroquois for the furs and other produce of their mountain forests. Because this trade was so abundant, the Nini Missinuic sachems carefully managed the distribution of wampum, just as Cuba today controls the export of cigars. The arrival of Europeans shook up the dynamic among the tribes in the region. Even those of you who have been only modestly attentive know that a great epidemic spread through coastal Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts in the years before the Pilgrims landed at Patuxet. The Narragansetts and the Pequots, arrayed along Long Island Sound to the south and west, had emerged from the great epidemic of the mid-16-teens in much better shape than the tribes along the coast north of Cape Cod. The Pequots in particular were quite populous. They are estimated to have numbered as many as 16,000 people in the first quarter of the 17th century. 
Both tribes took advantage of their weakened neighbors to grab a larger market share in the wampum for fur trade. At about the same time, the English and the Dutch arrived on the coast, first as traders and then as settlers. We have covered both at some length, so we won't rehash all of that here other than to remind you of two points. First, the English in general settled the coast north of Cape Cod, and the Dutch settled most heavily along the North River and the Fresh River. Second, the two European powers had different positions regarding the staking of claims. The English asserted their claims on the basis of having seen land or having set foot on it first. In their rather expansive view, the fact they had discovered Newfoundland and settled even temporarily along Acadia at various places, such as at Sagadahawk and in Virginia, meant that they had a valid claim to the entire coast in between. The Dutch believed that valid claims turned on actual population of an area, which they defined as requiring at least 50 settlers in the vicinity. England and the Dutch Republic had, under Elizabeth, been resolute allies against the Spanish. Under James I, the old alliance was slowly morphing into rivalry. There were confessional differences— James I was now Calvinist and was increasingly annoyed at his own Calvinist Puritans at home. The Dutch Protestants were thoroughly Calvinist, which is one reason why English Puritan separatists would flee to Holland. More importantly, the Dutch had so mastered the sea that they were becoming the wealthiest trading power on the planet. We've already talked about the immense wealth of the Dutch East India Company, and its smaller counterpart, the Dutch West India Company, was the organizing force in New Netherland by the mid-1620s. Without posts along the Connecticut and Hudson Rivers, the Dutch settlers stood between the Pequots and their wampum and the Iroquois and their furs. This was, in effect, an immensely profitable hot seat. Isaac de Rosier, secretary of New Netherland, estimated that in 1626, the Dutch exported no fewer than 10,000 pelts from the region. Imagine how much hunting had to happen in the Iroquoian lands for a haul that huge in only one year. The pilgrims of Plymouth, who had debts to pay to their investors in London, sent a ship around to the Narragansetts, hoping to cut into the Dutch trade along the coast. The English trading truck was not, in William Bradford's words, much esteemed by the Narragansetts. So the pilgrims turned north and set up a trading post in the interior of Maine, which met with some success. It was this trade that was undercut by Thomas Morton, the Lord of Misrule, you guys know him, from his perch at Marymount later in the decade. The bargaining between the Dutch and the Pequots and Narragansetts on the one hand and the Iroquois on the other, was intense, especially before the Dutch West India Company took over and insisted that the previously competing traders in the region collude to keep the prices of wampum and furs low. Until that time, trade might involve hostage-taking and other nastiness that threatened to disrupt the entire economy. In the scant surviving records, there's the story of two Dutch traders named Willem Joris Huntum and Jakob Jakob's Elkins. On more than one occasion, they took a local sachem hostage and demanded wampum for ransom, in one case taking 140 fathoms. That would be 840 feet 
of wampum belt to release an important sachem. Both men would play a leading role in monetizing wampum up the Hudson Valley. By 1626, the Dutch were reigning in the freelancers, and the West India Company negotiated a trading alliance with the Pequots. The Dutch would trade valuable European goods to the Pequots in return for wampum, which the Dutch would then use to buy the furs from the Iroquois up the Hudson. The European goods enabled the Pequots to dominate local tribes from whom they demanded tribute in, wait for it, wampum. Perhaps more importantly, the Dutch sold them metal nails and awls for drilling the holes for thread, which sparked a massive gain in the productivity of wampum production. Archaeological evidence and some extrapolations suggest that at least 7 million beads were produced in eastern Long Island alone from the 1630s to the 1660s. In our era of mass production, that does not seem like such a huge accomplishment. But then you remember how thinly populated the area was and how much time the Indians had to spend simply feeding themselves. Now let's go back to Professor Mwesi, quote, The willingness of the Pequots to accommodate Dutch demands had dramatic repercussions for the region. Warfare among the Algonquin peoples intensified, destabilizing many indigenous communities. Whereas communities previously had been left undefended, Algonquin towns in southern New England now became fortified through high palisades. In 1628, de Razier reported that the Pequots had brought wampum-producing Algonquin groups from eastern Long Island under tributary control. Several years later, the Pequots had brought most Algonquin communities in the middle Connecticut Valley under control. Pequot expansion was supported by lethal metal arrowheads forged from Dutch copper kettles and other trade goods. The Pequots and their neighbors were also drawn into an unpredictable market economy controlled by Europeans. By the late 1620s, the Algonquin peoples of southern New England were devoting increasing amounts of their time to the production of wampum. Back to me. This was, of course, turning wampum into a fiat currency. Unlike gold, which between big discoveries is in fundamentally finite supply, or even Bitcoin, which by design can only be produced through the application of vast amounts of work by computation. There's no obvious limit to wampum production. If you make it worth their while for thousands of Indians to scour the beaches for little shells, they will do that instead of other things. If you then make it much easier to turn those shells into currency by industrializing the polishing and drilling part, you're in effect increasing the money supply. And in the absence of a growing economy, that will cause inflation. In this case, the inflation would materialize as rising prices expressed in wampum for the relatively limited supply of furs available through the Dutch trading posts. Since one could not easily dial the Pequot wampum production machine, the only way to increase its value would be to increase the use of wampum as a currency in the regional economy. Since the Dutch were by some margin the most financially sophisticated of Europeans in that era, it should not surprise us that Isaac de Razier, the Secretary of New Netherland, tried to get the English interested in using wampum as a currency. In October 1627, de Razier visited Plymouth and sold them 50 fathoms of wampum, approximately 300 feet. 
Derazier probably hoped that the English would themselves trade wampum for furs in their sphere of influence along the coast north of Cape Cod, and that would enhance the value of the wampum produced by the Dutch Pequot Alliance. As far as it went, the strategy worked. The pilgrims used wampum to buy furs, as did the even more populous Massachusetts Bay Colony Puritans, who began to arrive in force in 1629 and 1630. The problem for the Dutch was that there were far more English in the region than Dutch. And as the English interest in wampum grew, they no longer saw a reason to buy it from the Dutch middlemen. What were the Dutch going to do if the English traded with the Indians directly? Well, as it turned out, and the English guessed, not much. The arrival of Plymouth traders to the wampum-producing Indian settlements along Long Island Sound had at least two effects. First, it created a bidding war for wampum. The tribes demanded more European goods for any given amount of wampum. That meant that the effective cost of furs as expressed in European manufacturers would rise. Second, it destabilized the geopolitics among the various tribes with ultimately fateful results. The arrival of the English from Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay to bid for wampum seemingly opened an opportunity for the Narragansetts and other smaller tribes who'd been chafing under Pequot Dominion. Professor Muwesi writes that in early 1631, various of the Algonquin communities in southern New England tried to entice the English into a military alliance against the Pequots, The English didn't agree, but the fear of an Anglo-Narragansett alliance pushed the Pequots and the Dutch closer together. Now back to Professor Moesey, quote, In the meantime, the Pequots and the Dutch consolidated their close alliance in the face of the growing English influence in southern New England. The Dutch West India Company had become increasingly concerned about the English, after Plymouth Colony officials temporarily held a company vessel in 1632. This ship was seized by the English to protest the illegal Dutch claim to North America. The incident angered the States General, which formally lodged a complaint against the English government in which it argued that New Netherland was justifiably Dutch territory. To shore up the defenses of New Netherland against the English, the Amsterdam Chamber sent more than 100 soldiers to the colony together with a new governor, Wouter van Twiller, in the spring of 1633. Soon after his arrival, van Twiller dispatched officials to the Connecticut Valley to obtain Indian deeds with which to secure Dutch claims against the English. One of these officials... Jakob van Kuller negotiated an agreement with the Pequots that enabled the Dutch to construct a fortified trading post named Good Hope in the Middle Connecticut Valley in June 1633. The Pequots did not consider the small number of Dutch traders and soldiers a threat, but rather a guarantee of a constant flow of trade goods. For its part, the West India Company was grateful for the Pequot invitation because the trading posts strengthened Dutch claims to the region. Back to me. Fort Good Hope was roughly at Hartford, and the English didn't like it one bit. The theoretical objection persisted that the Dutch had no valid claim to any part of New Netherland. In addition, the English population along the coast was exploding by the standard of the time, and they coveted the fertile land along the Connecticut River Valley. 
By the early 1630s, the English population of the Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth settlements probably exceeded 4,000, while the Dutch and Walloon population in all of New Netherland may not have exceeded 300. This was a function of their very different objectives in North America. The Dutch were there to trade with settlements only incidental to commerce. Indeed, they couldn't have attracted large populations to North America even if they wanted to because life in the Netherlands was both prosperous and free. England, however, was producing huge numbers of economic and religious refugees, and they came to English North America with their families to stay forever. This put the Dutch, originally much more powerful than the English along that part of the coast, at a substantial and growing disadvantage. Anyway, in June 1633... Governor John Winthrop of Massachusetts Bay, a formidable man of whom we will hear much more, protested the founding of Fort Good Hope to Van Twiller, arguing that the English crown, from whom Winthrop was himself a refugee, was the sovereign owner of the entire eastern part of New Netherland from Manhattan to Narragansett Bay. Van Twiller responded that they had rightful possession of the Connecticut River by virtue of the deeds they'd purchased from the Pequots and their development of the base at Hartford, but that in any case, he and Winthrop should refer the matter to their superiors in Europe. This was a smart position for Von Twiller to take, insofar as he quite reasonably believed that the actual English crown would care more about avoiding conflict with the Dutch Republic than the petty interests of a bunch of Puritan refugees thousands of miles away. Bradford's pilgrims had a better idea. In September 1633, they turned the Dutch argument around and established their own trading post on the Connecticut River. Now back to Muwesi, quote, Shrewdly adopting the Dutch West India Company policy of obtaining Indian deeds to claim territory, the Puritan officials bought, you can't see my scare quotes, a plot of land from Natawunuti, an Algonquin sachem who had been exiled by the Pequots from the Connecticut Valley some years before. Natawinuti was willing to sell his land since he had gained military support from Plymouth Colony. The Plymouth officials located their trading post a short distance upriver from Fort Good Hope. Thus, they were able to intercept native fur traders from the upper Connecticut Valley before they reached Good Hope to exchange pelts for wampum. In an attempt to intimidate the small English outpost, Van Twiller dispatched most of his recently arrived soldiers to the English trading station. This intimidation tactic did not, however, have the desired effect. The English traders refused to leave, and the West India Company soldiers had apparently received orders from Van Twiller not to attack the English. After an inconclusive meeting with the English, the soldiers returned to New Amsterdam, which is the West India Company headquarters on Manhattan. Bluff called. The English from Plymouth had learned a thing or two about bluff and bluster from their military leader, Miles Standish, otherwise known to us as Captain Shrimp. Muesi doesn't say so, but I find it hard to believe that Standish who would remain the military leader of the Pilgrims until 1635, had not prepped them for exactly that confrontation with the Dutch. Two other things might be said about the encounter along the Connecticut, one serious and one a bit impish. 
First, the Pequots had to have known that the English had completely faced the Dutch and surely would have reconsidered the value of their alliance once they learned that the Dutch would not actually do anything to confront the English. The Dutch-Pequot alliance would collapse over the next few years, at least in part because of inept diplomacy by von Twiller and the garrison at New Hope. Second, this is the impish part, the acquisition of Natuinote's former lands previously conquered by the Pequots would certainly complicate any 21st century land acknowledgement ceremonies in the area. Sometimes it's difficult to say precisely who dispossessed whom. In addition to learning that the Dutch might not be terribly useful in a war, it turned out that the Pequots and the Dutch had very different ideas about the purpose of the Good Hope trading post. The Dutch viewed it as a free market hub, open to tribes from throughout the region who had goods to trade. Pequots viewed it as their own captive market and would interdict other Indians as they approached the Dutch fort. Now back to Muwesi, quote, When, shortly after the completion of the fort, a group of natives, most likely Narragansetts or Neantics, attempted to trade with the Dutch at Good Hope, they were ambushed and killed by Pequot warriors. This incident greatly angered the officials of Good Hope, who sought to draw all indigenous peoples of southern New England to the West India Company. The foolish response of the local Dutch commander at the fort, however, effectively ended any chances the company may have had of using strategic alliances with the Pequots to stop further English expansion into the Connecticut Valley. To humiliate the Pequots, company personnel at the fort took hostage Tabatum, the grand sachem of the Pequots. Although the Pequots paid the Dutch the required wampum ransom, the Dutch killed Tabatum Anyway, briefly back to me. There's a sort of lingering notion that the Dutch had more humane relations with the Indians of the region than other European powers. My suspicion, in part based on this encounter, is that the Dutch were as capable of and as inclined to gratuitous violence as any of the Europeans, or for that matter, indigenous peoples in the region but avoided big wars because of their focus on trade rather than planting. They just never had the people for a full-on war in North America. Back to Muwesi, quote, The Pequots took a measured response to the killing of Tabatum because they did not want to lose the profitable trade alliance with the Dutch. Severing the vital connection to the Dutch would have brought on the collapse of the wampum trade on which Pequot power in the region was based, The Pequots responded not by declaring an all-out war against the Dutch, but by relying on the Algonquin practice of revenge killings, by which members of the aggrieved party were permitted to take the lives of individuals related to the perpetrators. Instead of killing West India Company personnel, who were perhaps well-fortified in good hope, the Pequots and their Western Neantech tributaries murdered the English merchant adventurer John Stone, and his crew as they navigated the Connecticut River in 1633. Stone was considered a rightful target because the Pequots and the Western Neontics had observed how he kidnapped two natives along the Connecticut River. 
In the late summer of 1636, shortly before the outbreak of the Pequot War, a Pequot sachem also told the English that the Pequots had killed Stone because at that time they knew, quote, no difference between the Dutch and the English. They are both strangers to us. We took them to be all one. Back to me. The English did not buy this explanation, and it certainly may have been self-serving. Professor Muesi, however, thinks it's plausible insofar as the Pequots had not at that point had much direct contact with the Dutch. I'm not so sure myself. It seems very unlikely that the Pequots did not know about the confrontation with the Dutch at the Pilgrim Settlement on the Connecticut River. It strikes me as far more likely that the Pequot sachem was groping for plausible deniability, worried that the English would go to war over Stone and other supposed grievances. That war would indeed come soon enough. Anyway, having extracted revenge of a sort by killing Stone, the Pequots expected to resume their constructive trade with the Dutch. That might have happened, but the, quote, spectacularly undiplomatic personnel at Good Hope killed yet another Pequot sachem, close quote. The aforementioned destruction of the West India Company records means that we do not even know the name of the Dutch commander at Good Hope, and we do not know why he killed the sachem, but we do know that the Pequots began to look elsewhere. Not only was the trading alliance with the Dutch increasingly fraught, but an epidemic, presumably smallpox, ripped through the tribe in the winter of 1633 and 34. In the course of months, the Pequot population fell from 16,000 to perhaps as low as 3,000. Payback being a thing in 17th century America. Tribes that had been chafing under Pequot dominion began to rebel or themselves look elsewhere. The Narragansetts, who'd also been hammered by the epidemic, nevertheless stepped up their attacks on the Pequots to retaliate for the killing of their men who'd gone to trade at Good Hope. By the fall of 1634, the Pequots were desperate. So they did the obvious thing. They sent a delegation to Boston to meet with the leaders of the Massachusetts Bay Company. It did not go well. The Puritan leaders sensed the Pequot desperation and made such excessive demands for reparations over the killing of John Stone that the Pequots gave up on useful relations with the English. The Puritans, whoever, learned about the power vacuum that had opened up in central Connecticut and in 1635 moved to settle the area in force. By the spring of 1636, three Puritan settlements had opened up along the Connecticut River between the original Pilgrim Trading Post and Fort Good Hope. There were at least 250 English in the area, substantially outnumbering the small Dutch settlement of traders and soldiers. After the diplomatic failure in Boston, the now much diminished Pequots reestablished trade with the Dutch. But that alliance, such as it was, could not restore Pequot power. The English population kept growing, and that would lead to a series of crises among all the peoples of the region, and eventually the Pequot War. But that is another story. This is a good place to stop right now. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends 
spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, we're almost at 300, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>